Well, this is a Sunday you absolutely want to be at because we are actually looking at probably, if not the most important verses of the Bible, definitely one of the most important verses of the Bible. Maybe John 3.16 is more important. I don't know. Close, close tie. You know that verse, John 3.16. God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, what? Believes in him, what happens? Shall not perish and has everlasting life. The two things that if you ask people about, they want to know the answer. Are you afraid to die? Yes. What are they saying? I am afraid to perish. And do you know the way to have eternal life? I'm not sure. I need to be a good person. I need to go to church. I need to get last rites from a priest. I, I'm not sure. There's a lot of things floating out there, and I don't know if I know all of them or enough of them. I do some of them. I try to be a good person. I know there's a rule out there, treat others as you'd want to be treated. I'm giving it my best. I fell. I'm hoping God takes that into account, but I'm, I'm doing my best, but I'm still afraid to die, and, and I can't say for sure I have eternal life. Well, good for you. I know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? Here we are. The answer comes. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Such a certainty of the gift of God for salvation, and that is not to perish, and that is to have eternal life. Boy, this book of Ephesians all ties together if you've been with us. It starts out with an incredibly long sentence of praise, declaring all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ in heavenly places. And then Paul teaches us how to pray with a powerful first prayer. We'll have another powerful prayer in chapter 3. And then he launches into preaching the gospel to the believers in Ephesus, but is things getting confused? Is clouds coming in? Is the fog rolling in? And, and that which used to be so simple and so secure and so sure becoming not so sure. Well, I, I don't want the Christians to not have a certainty of salvation. Now, Paul began his sermon with a vivid description of our human condition. He, didn't, he did not lighten any of the punches. He told us that we were sinners dead in trespass and sins. We were deluded, disobedient, defiled, doomed. Paul then continues with the historical analysis of what God did and then an expectation of why God did it. We are rescued from death. We are rescued by love. We are rescued for life. We are rescued for a reason. And now it'll take eternity throughout the ages to come while we're seated, to get, seated together with him in heavenly places to understand the depths of his grace and kindness. 
from the lowest of pits to the highest of pinnacles, Paul takes us. And now we are at the peak, the highest peak that one human can ever travel to in theology, in understanding God, in understanding truth, in understanding good news. And that's what we discover in verse 8, 9, and 10. We discover that we are saved by grace. We are saved through faith. It's not of works. It's not a self-effort. But we have been made for good works. Not works save us, but yet we are made to have good works in our lives. But we're not to confuse the issue. The works don't save us. So we look at these two verses. We're going to see that this scripture separates all religions in the world from Christianity. So I tell people that are atheists, give me five minutes, I'll prove to you you're not an atheist, and that it's ultimately very clear who is the right God and the only God and the only one who has a message of salvation. Because, number one, you, you, nobody can be an atheist. It's, it's just really, they're showing their ignorance if they say that. Because you have to ask the question, for you to say there is no God, you would have to yourselves be everywhere in the universe, throughout all of history. We don't even know the future, how far the history goes, do we? how far life goes, but you would have to be in the very, very beginning, and you would have to be in the very, 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 very future in all space of the universe at the same time. You literally have to describe yourself being God to say there's no God. Have you been everywhere in the universe at the same time in the same sense? No. How do you know God wasn't sitting there on Mars and you weren't there in 1800? It just, it logically cannot exist. Then you ask the next question. You ever seen a building? Yes. How did the building get there? Somebody built it. Is there any buildings on earth at all that somebody didn't build? No, of course not. So how did we get here? How did this planet get here? In order for you to say there is no God, this planet had to make itself. And now this planet had to create space and had to create matter. Well, no, no the, the planet's made of space and matter. Oh, so the planet would have to have created what it exists of. Because something had to come from somewhere at some time. Einstein's first law of thermodynamics and Einstein's second law of thermodynamics proves that all matter that exists started, there was some point it was created. And it can never not exist and no new matter can be added to it. So according to Einstein's first law, no new matter can come into existence and all the matter that exists cannot stop existing. Second law of thermodynamics, it, it's winding down. Everything is winding down. Entropy is happening. 
So there had to be a starting point in, ever, in order for things to have winded down because you can't, inv- you can't infinitely wind up. <laughs> so there had to be an architect. There had to be a designer. Pick up a banana and fill out a, see how it fills in your hand. Perfect fit. It's not covered in some plastic that will destroy our planet. It's, its cover will keep all germs out. Amazing. And it opens so wonderfully. I hate, I hate that. You know, you get a ding-dong and you're trying to open the plastic off of it and it's so hard. You know what I mean? You got to wrestle with that candy bar package. Oh, I got it out of there. And what do we do? We just, boop. No packaging man has made is as good as that banana pill. We just peel it right down. Oh, it fits in my hand perfectly, fits in my mouth perfectly, and in it is not a ding-dong or a candy bar, is it? Something incredibly nutritious. It's not gray. Everything on planet's not gray and black and gooey. We've got yellow bananas and red apples and green pears and the list goes on. So many aesthetic, beautiful things. How could matter create such beauty? How is it that what I need to exist exists on planet Earth perfectly for me? The water I need, the food I need, this perfect chemistry of oxygen-nitrogen balance, perfect for us to live on. You don't see an airplane and say, wow, that took a billion years to evolve. You say that's impossible, but really, in actuality, it's improbable. It's improbable that this right here, this pulpit, if we wait 100 years or 10,000 years or 10 billion years, will never turn into an elephant. And I think that if I believed that, I'd be crazy. But yet, mathematically, according to evolution to have begun, there is more of a chance for this pulpit to turn to an elephant than for the first single cell to be existing, the amino acid beginning out of the goo and then getting eyes and ears and and eventually color and, and aesthetics and all of these things. It's just, it's just insanity. Mathematicians know it to be true. Many science who still teach evolution know it's not true. And there's not 10 choices out there. There's two choices, evolution or creation. There's not a third choice. One is mathematically impossible. You're believing that because you're starting with a bent. What is that bent? I don't want there to be a God because if God made this place in a purpose, he made me for a purpose, I may not be living for his purpose and therefore there may judgment come. Yes, this is all God built inside us. No matter where you go on the planet, people know murder is wrong, lying is wrong, stealing is wrong, rape is wrong, adultery is wrong. Wherever you go on the planet, it could be in a little tiny jungle that has never seen anybody outside their own little tribe. 
but yet they know all those things. Why? Because we have a common maker. If I took you into an art museum and there's all kinds of paintings on the wall and we studied those paintings, without looking who signed it, we would know who the artist is, wouldn't we? Especially if you were somebody that understood art. Even though one's of a city, another one's of a tree, I can tell by the brushstroke. I can tell by the color pigmentation. I can tell by certain bumps in the canvas. They know the common, they know that it was a common designer. This is what we see on planet Earth. Many, many, many different designs, but yet a common designer. And so, yes, God's put eternity in all our hearts. God put a conscience in all of us. God wrote upon that conscience right and wrong. People says, well, you just got to be tolerated, tolerant and, and, and receive everybody's truth as equal. So you do believe in truth? Yes. Then you also believe in a lie. You also believe in things that are not true. No, 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 no. No, no, I'm, I'm telling you. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. you, you if, if there's only mountains, you have no valleys, right? You have a plain. <laughs> I believe in mountains. Then you believe in valleys. No, I don't believe in valleys. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. You, you have to. If you believe in truth, the whole point of believing in truth is there has to be the opposite of the truth. So if, if, if you believe that there is wrong, if murder is wrong, then you also believe that there is righteousness and holiness and purity because the person who murdered sinned. The person who murdered did wrong and they should be judged for that wrong. We on planet Earth believe that. Where you don't believe that, like in L.A. County now, <laughs> with this new district attorney, he, he is trying to, he's trying to minimize wrong. He's trying to take away laws. And let me tell you, guys, if you do not have laws that fit the punishment and the punishment is quick, the society begins to self-destruct. This is the picture we have of the last days before the Antichrist comes and starts putting things back together in his demonic way, saying peace, peace, when really sudden destruction's on its way. So I'm not surprised that he's minimizing right and wrong and he's confused. He's confused on, on when to show mercy and when to show justice. And without judgment and justice on the earth, we, we have nothing but chaos. And so, again, we, we come back to the Bible and what it says. And the truth of the Bible is logically true. It's not just something we selectively believe. It's something that goes right along with human nature. And so we, we learn that we are sinners and we need a savior and we learn the gospel of Christ here in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that 
no other religion even comes close to being similar. Well, aren't our religions similar? 85% the same. Yes. But that 15% difference is huge. All religions hold the moral conscience. Because it would be stupid to not have a... It'd be stupid. Even Satan knows you can't have a religion that goes against the moral conscience. So all religions are against divorce. All religions are against murder and lying and cheating. They want all their church members to be honest and hardworking and good parents. And yeah, yeah, we're 85% the same. Satan knows that he has to be clothed in it as an angel of light to get any traction. So do his false prophets and apostles. I like what Gino Garissi, a good friend of mine, who pastored in, in Colorado for many years. He has been giving me his notes, and he's been, they've been very, very helpful. And uh, he, he, here's a quote of his. This single scripture proves false and untrue in every religion or philosophy that teaches humanity it is not really lost, or sin is not really the problem, for that you can earn or merit salvation. If mankind is not really doomed and damned, there is nothing to be saved from. If mankind really is doomed and damned, the question becomes, how can I be saved? Every man-made religion, every cult, whether Christian or non-Christian, unite in a single chorus and deny this truth. Salvation is by God's grace alone, not by any human effort. There it is. Christianity alone says this. Salvation can only be received by the simple faith in Christ. There is something in our broken and bent condition that wants to contribute to our own salvation. I believe this is why so many false religions and false philosophies and false cults grow and proliferate. And so man in his sinful condition has a sense that something's got to be fixed and I need to fix it and God help me to fix it. I'm working on it, but I need your help. I'm trying to be better, but I need you to give me some supernatural strength to be better. And I feel like I'm doing better this week. Oh, okay, I didn't think of that and that and that and that. Actually, I'm doing worse this week. Next week, I'm not as motivated for this next week as I was last week. And now that I'm thinking about it, I really did horrible last week. And I'm not even as motivated to start into this week. I'm sort of flat this week. I'm sort of impassionate this week. I'm sort of got the big giant I don't cares this week. And, and I failed last week when I had a lot of passion, a lot of desire, and I was trying so hard. Now this week, I'm not trying as hard, and I got a feeling it's going to even go worse. We, we come to the place to realize that, that we can't do it, that we can't fix it. And so all religions try to tell you to be crazy radical to fix it. In the Muslim religion, they tell you that, that Allah wakes up every day with whatever attitude he has. It's the will of Allah. Got cancer, it's the will of Allah. 3,000 people were killed in an earthquake. It's the will of Allah. And so you've tried to be a good Muslim your whole life, and 
Allah wakes up one morning with the bad attitude saying, no one's going to heaven today. But I've tried so hard and this is my day to die. Ah, it's the will of Allah. So what's my only guarantee to go to heaven? Well, I need to believe the jihad is literal and physical, not just spiritual. And I need to die in an act of war killing infidels. Not only will I go to heaven, but I'll have 73 or I'll have 73 virgins for all of eternity to have sex with. That's heaven? You don't think in eternity 73 is really no different than one? You're going to get bored with them? Like 73 is enough variation over eternity to not get bored with 73 women? But the idea that the top thing in heaven is having sex. You see how it starts getting pretty crazy and fanatical? The Eastern religions tell you that you got to keep getting reincarnated, reincarnated, and reincarnated, and do better and do better. And the reason you're suffering this life is because you were horrible as a moth in your last life. You were a bad moth. So now you're going to be a, a, a cockroach, try to be a better cockroach, and maybe you could become a butterfly. Oh, good guru, where shall I end? After many, many tries of evolution, or excuse me, of reincarnation, eventually you'll come to the ultimate. What is that? A cow. No joke. No joke. Everybody on earth that's a cow is going to be going to the next place, nirvana, which literally means nothingness. You get to stop existing altogether, and that is your reward. Oh, which religion is right? Oh, I can't figure it out. It's so hard. Really? Have you really looked at other religions? They're, they're trying to solve this problem. I'm a sinful person, and I try to be better, and I can't be better. And, and I know God's a just God. I have a sense of, of, of judgment and, and of justice and of righteousness, and I am not it, and that, that God in justice has to judge me, and I am in trouble. I will get yourself a uh, rug and start praying five times a, a day facing Mecca to the east and uh, start learning the Quran. Oh, will that save me? No, not no, it won't save you, but th this is what you need to learn. It's sad. So we're gonna look at what it means to be saved by grace, having faith in that grace. And we need to study these words, grace, saved, faith, not of yourself, not of works, they're different. A lot of times people talk of those as being the same. It's a gift of God. So all these words have no meaning outside of the context from God or through the Son, Jesus Christ. You see, people try to make certain things a something when they're really nothing until they're defined. What do you believe in? I believe in love. Well, you got to define that. What, what does love mean? Oh, I believe in grace. Just be grace, 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 grace. What, what does grace mean? You see, love has no meaning unless you connect it to the example of love, Jesus. 
God is love. Jesus is love. Now it has a definition. Grace. There's all kinds of graceful people. There's people that are absolute mean and they think they're being graceful. Oh, I thought I was being really graceful. For me, that was very graceful. That was, whoa, man, glad I don't live next door. What is grace? We have to say the grace of God. First of all, when we tell people they need to be saved, what does that mean? Saved. Do you remember back maybe before you received Christ and maybe the first time somebody came and asked you that question, are you saved? Saved? What do you mean? Saved from what? I have no idea what you're talking about. And of course, the answer is we're saved from God's wrath, from God's judgment. Yes, there is a place called hell. People are quite content to talk about spiritual matters until you bring up the subject of eternal punishment. So what are many churches doing today? They're just sort of figuring out a way to erase that from their Bibles. They're trying to find a way to dance around the fact that really hell isn't quite what you've been told for the last 2,000 years of Christianity. If you look at this verse that way and that verse that way, I'm not even sure if anybody is, is anybody's going to hell for eternity. If there is a hell, it's a temporary thing. It's not a permanent thing. If there is a place of punishment, it's just a jail for a time. And... Uh, they don't want to tell you there's an eternal lake of fire. It's a very painful subject. It's not something we talk about with glee. Spurgeon said, God help the Christian who talks to somebody about hell without crying. We've already covered this subject. Paul, it's one of the very first things he brought up in chapter one and two, remember, we were dead in chapter two, he says in verse one through three, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air, a term for Satan. We were sons of disobedience. We're by nature children of wrath. Most of what we know about hell is taught from the lips of Jesus. And Jesus in Mark one said, the time's fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. And believe the gospel. Jesus called people to repent of their sins. He said we were also once a part of Satan's great rebellion. The Bible tells us that hell is a place prepared for Satan and his host, his angels, his angelic, angelic host. That there is a future coming where Jesus alone will judge. The gospel of John tells us. And when he judges Satan, he's also going to judge man who has continued to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, Then he also, then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you curse, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Most of what we know was taught from Jesus. He describes this place as an everlasting, unquenchable fire, a place with memory and remorse and thirst and pain and anger and frustration and a separation from God and a place undil with undiluted wrath. 
Some people wonder if Jesus is using just symbolic language or metaphor language. Usually this lesson, um, the, the grave images, but no. Jesus talked about a literal place of horror and torment. So again, people like to reject the concept of hell. I would simply ask you then, what is God saving us from? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Think about this with me a moment. If there is no wrath, you are saying that Jesus died brutally tortured for what? For good men to be better? For better men to be even better still? From us, everybody going to heaven, but Jesus died on the cross, so you wouldn't have to get locked up for a few days, years, months, I don't know, in hell, and then he releases you into heaven. That's why Christ died. Guys, Jesus was separated from the Father on that cross. Oh my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The torture he underwent, his beard being ripped out, a crown of thorns, the mocking, the spitting, the cruelty, and then guilt by association with two known horrible criminals on each side. Everybody passing by would say, I know that criminal, I know the criminal. I don't know the guy in the middle, but he must be equally a criminal as those other guys. And there, by association, Jesus looks like a man receiving his just justice on the cross when he was the perfect lamb of God. It would be like this. If my son saw a child in the road and went and pushed the child out of the way and the car hit him. And then everybody around comes up to me and says, your son didn't need to die. That was so ridiculous. Nothing was going to hit that boy. That, that driver saw that boy way back there. He was already slowing down. He never would have hit him. He would have completely missed him. Your, your, your son who died, it, it was a complete idiot. Or just unaware. Let's be nice about it. He just didn't really, he, he calculated the situation, but inaccurately. It was un needed effort on his part he died for no reason really or for a reason that really wasn't genuinely true do you, do you understand now let's change it because god gave his son i am pushing my son into the child that gets pushed knocked out of the way and now the crowd comes and says that was evil of you pushing your son in front of that car to knock that child out of the way. Whether it was needed or not, what I did is murder, right? It's an evil thing. Then no one's going to look at me and hear, oh, well, I saved the boy. If I didn't knock my son into that little boy, that little boy would have been dead. You should see me as a hero. I was willingly to sacrifice my son for somebody else's son to live. I, you, we're locking you up in prison because that's an evil thing, right? So guys, Christianity is about a loving father with a heroic son. Or Christianity is about an evil father who had a son die. A horrible, torturous, wicked death. For what? 
for some minimal reason. Why did Jesus come into human flesh and live as a human for 33 years? That's enough torture. (laughs) So as a human, he could be our substitute. As God, all that he did would be eternal. So it wouldn't just be the sins of one man that he could pay for, but the sins of all men of all time. Guys, Jesus died on the cross because every man is worthy of eternal damnation in hell, a place of torment, of pain, of suffering, along with Satan and all the angelic hosts and all the hosts of people that continue to live a life in their own pride or in their own evilness and not turning to God for salvation. Now, we're going to look at first this work, this word of grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith. The Greek word is charisis. It, it, it literally means a favorable regard. I like this these four words out of uh, Abbott Smith's manual Greek lexicon. He says this, graciousness, kindness, goodwill, favor. Within grace is the understanding. It's all we need and then much more than we need. So example, if you need forgiveness, God doesn't just give you just enough forgiveness to take care of your issue at hand. God gives you much more forgiveness than you need. In Romans 5.20, but where sin abounds, grace abounded what? Much more. Now, I should just say grace abounded more, right? And I've actually heard people quote it that way, and I stop them going, hold it. No, 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 it's not just more. I mean, that is grace. But I want you to understand grace is not just more, it's much more. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And what? Much more to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The sin that you identified, the sin that the Holy Spirit spoke to you about, but then all the sins that God didn't bring up, or it would overwhelm you. And like Judas, you'd go out and hang yourself. And so this grace again can only be understood in Christ, from Christ, a divine grace. We'll make a mistake, a big mistake, when we talk about faith and love and grace. If we say experientially on earth as a human, I know what it's like to have faith in another human, so now I can understand what it's like to have faith in God. No. I know what it's like to have love for my child, so therefore I understand God's love for me. No. God's on a whole nether level. His love, his mercy, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his graciousness, it's far above anything human. As high as the heavens are above the earth, it's still much greater. We just learned that it's going to take eternity in heaven to continue to learn about God's grace. 
And so throughout the Bible in the Old Testament, we have a lot of pictures of this. Love to take the time, but we won't. And 2 Samuel 9 with Mephibosheth or the book of Jonah or Hosea or Jesus in the Gospels or all the doctrines of the apostles. Man, it would literally take us a lifetime to go through all the verses in the Bible about God's grace. It's awesome if you ever have been through and you studied the first usage of a word in the Bible. The first usage is in Genesis 6, 8, talking about Noah. The first time grace was mentioned in the New Testament was Luke 2, talking about Jesus growing in grace. But the very next time, the second time, it begins to explain it. In John 1, 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus showed up, and there was no man that had ever existed on planet Earth like him. Jesus lived with this graciousness, and it, it made you look right in to heaven and see God the Father in his nature in a way that had never been seen before. He goes on describing this in John 1, 16. And of his fullness we've all received grace for grace, grace upon grace. You know this is an impossibility because grace itself is all you need and more. Then it's saying all you need and more and then all you need and more again. <laughs> You've heard me give that picture, that analogy of of the guy needing forgiveness and he comes to God with this five gallon bucket. And he says, God, oh Lord, give me some grace. Give me some forgiveness. Give me some mercy. And God looks at him with this bucket and the Lord says, give this guy just grace, not grace upon grace yet, just grace. And he's got his little five gallon bucket there. And all of a sudden this fire hose turns on. <laughs> Oh, the bucket just flies out of his hands. And then he turns around and there's another fire hose and another fire hose and another fire hose. And he's in the middle of this thing going, ah, ah, ah. And then after a little bit, I'm floating out in the middle of this rather large pond, maybe even a lake going, God. And you find your five gallon bucket going, I just needed some grace. And then the Lord smiles and says, now that was not upon grace yet. And there you look in the distance and there's this giant damn wall opening up, this torrent. And you look on the other side and the other side and all of a sudden on all four sides at a distance, these giant dams are unloading. And there you are, now you're paddling, trying to stay above it and you can't even see land anymore. And the Lord's just laughing and laughing going, okay, you're forgiven. Is that enough mercy? Is that enough kindness? Grace upon grace. This is where we need to get and understand. It's by that grace we are saved. He describes it in Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let's hold on. Hold on tight. Don't let go. Don't get discouraged. Don't think that God's getting impatient with you, that God's getting irritated with your weakness, that God's overcome by your humanness. 
that your sins are challenging his ability to forgive you. Don't think those thoughts. Hold on. God's grace is grace upon grace is more than we can ever humanly imagine. He just said in chapter 2, it's going to take us all of eternity to keep unlocking, uh, just keep unlocking the doors on understanding grace. It's an eternal subject. In verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come how? Boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy, find grace to help in the time of need. See, that's faith. Faith in the grace. What's that look like? It looks bold. You see, here's how religion messes with your brain. You need to feel unworthy. You need to realize what a crumb you are. You need to realize what a horrible, evil, sinner, wicked person. And, 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 and God's forgiving you, but he doesn't like having to. God's forgiving you, but you're irritating him. And so we come in and we light a candle and we get on our knees and we say, Oh, God. I know I've asked this so many times in my life. I know I sound like a broken record. I know that I, I should be doing much better by now. All my friends are, I think, I'm pretty sure they're all doing much better than I am. And I, I, I know if, if my wife or my husband or my kids or people at church really knew what I'm struggling with, they would know they wouldn't even let me in the church anymore. They'd kick me out of the house. I'm such a horrible, horrible person. Can you find it in your heart just one more time, God, to forgive me? Please, I'll do better. I promise, I promise I'll do better. That is not Christianity. That's what the Muslims do. That is what the Catholics are taught to do. That's what all religions of the world do. They, they tell man that you need to reach God and you need to please God so he likes you and you need to really, you got a lot of bad stuff to make up for. And, and you really need to make this year the year that you make up for all those bad years. That's not Christianity. Just think if your kids came to you that way. Your little three-year-old comes in and goes, I'm so sorry for pooping my pants again. Oh, forgive me, Mom. You have to change those diapers. And I, I, I know you, you told me my cousin Billy, he's four months younger than me, and he's got this thing down. And, and you were telling me, your, your grandma told me that you had it down at two, Mom. And I, I just, I, you know, I just feel it coming, but I'm having so much fun with my toys. And, you know, I, oh, just, I want to die. I want to die. Just, just please let me kill myself, Mom. These dirty diapers are bumming you out. Dad comes in. He smells it. He hates that smell. I'm, I'm smelly. I'm gooey. I'm, it's taking you a lot of time and effort. I know you hate. Or the 13-year-old comes in. I don't know what happened to me. I was a nice kid, wasn't I? It's puberty happened and, and I'm a monster. I don't know. Help me. What are you saying as a parent? Look, 
I knew before we ever had you, there was going to be this potty training thing happening. And I knew there would be setbacks, many setbacks. And I'm not bummed. I, it doesn't bother me at all. i got to change your diaper. It, it's, it's in, it, you know, yeah, I'm encouraging you not, to, to, to not have to do that anymore, but there is no weight on you to solve that other than to just listen to what I say and keep moving forward. You tell your teenage kid, look, I understood when I had you, I'd have a teenager. I know what teenagers like. I was a teenager. And we are fully prepared to wrestle through with you those years of teenage. Do you you want your kids walking around all bummed at themselves because they're bumming you out as parents? They walk in the door, they're like, oh, I hate walking in this door because I just feel this atmosphere of, of disappointment from my parents because I pooped my diaper or because I got a C on my math test and they want me to get A's. And uh, Or do you want them walking in the door and smiling when they see you and grabbing you and hugging you? and They know that you're going to love them to the end. They know you're going to be for them and do whatever you can to bless their life, right? Does God want a bunch of bummed out sheep? Does he want a bunch of bummed out children? Does he want his wife on the wedding day going, I can't believe you're marrying me. You're so wonderful. I'm so horrible. I can't believe you got stuck with me. Oh, you deserve better than me. Oh, is that the way you want your wife going through the ceremony? Or do you want the wife full of joy? We come boldly. God, I come. I need to be washed and cleansed once again. Jesus, I know you're doing it even when I'm not aware of it. I hate my sin. I love you so much. I want to I wanna be holy for you because I love you and you're worthy. But God, it is flesh. I can't wait till I'm out of it. But until then, Lord, thank you. Thank you, God, where your sin, my sin abounds, your grace abounds more. Thank you, Lord, when I fall down seven times, I can get up seven times because you have a a throne of mercy and grace, and I come over and over again. So Satan's strategy, he, he wants you to think God and his grace has limits. He wants you to picture a grace that is not pouring out and overflowing. He wants you to picture a grace that has its limit and God has also had its limit. So it's like you're coming into the throne of grace and God and the angels, everybody has an attitude. You walk in the first time as a new Christian. Hey, I hear that the, this, this uh, place is, is a pretty wonderful place to come to. There's a big throne of grace and there's a great sea in front of it, probably grace. And, and I get all the grace and mercy I need. I'm excited to come to this place. God, I sinned, and God washes me in his grace. But then 10 minutes later, I got to go back in. Hey, God, I I know I was just here, but I I need some more grace again. And 10 minutes later. And then then Satan wants you to think God's starting to have an attitude. Dude, this has been going on for eight months now. And I've seen Christians sin. I've seen a lot of Christians the last 2,000 years. 
but you are in a separate category. I forgive you. I, I just, I just hope. Uh, just, just go. And ten minutes later, I come back in. And now God's like, I, I don't even want to hear it. You're forgiven. Go. And then you got to go back. And now Gabriel says, Hey, look who's back. Oh, oh I didn't expect him to come back. Ha 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 ha. But it's gone from funny to sort of pathetic to God. God's going, Gabriel, Mike, have we ever seen anything like this before? No. No, no. Uh uh. Gabriel, check the book of life. Is his name really in there? I, I'm thinking by now this can't be because Christians don't sin like this, do they? Hey, his name's in there. I, I don't know what to say. This, this is new. This is a new one. In 2,000 years of Christianity, whew, I, I, don't, I don't know how to characterize this guy. And then after that, you're forgiven. You got to go back again. And there they are again, everybody giving each other looks and disgust and God, yeah, what do you, what do you need? Oh, again? Okay. I mean, this is like the 300th time this year I've heard this. Let's just start numbering, you know. My number one forgiveness prayer, God, okay. Then you got to go back. Eventually you're going to say, God, screw you. Screw heaven. Screw grace. Screw Christianity. I don't care about anything. It's forget it. I can't be good enough. And I, I'm going to quit trying. And, and I just hate this whole thing. That's how a lot of people leave Christianity. Because Satan has convinced them. And there's a lot of people in the church convinced of it also. That there's this limit of grace. And there's this irritableness by God. And there's this impatience that you cross the line. And God now is, is really struggling with having a heart of forgiveness towards you. Matthew 18, remember? Peter said, Lord, how many times will we forgive our brother? Seven times a day? And Jesus said, so many times seven. In other words, it's mathematics doesn't matter how many, however many times you need to. If that's what God tells us evil human beings to forgive, 70 times seven, how much more do you think God's going to forgive? Who's a God perfect in love and patience and kindness? Well, just a little bit more. I want to look also through faith. So faith is the word pistis. It means to put trust into or to believe. We do not believe in the power of faith. Faith, like grace, like love, means nothing until you explain it. And so we're not believing in grace. We're believing in God's grace. We're believing in God's forgiveness. Because the most forgiving person that's ever lived on this earth cannot compare to God's forgiveness. The most gracious person that has ever existed can't compare to God's grace. And so now we're not talking about faith in another human being or faith in a Christian organization or faith in our government. <laughs> Figured I'd get a laugh on that one. 
haven't had faith in the government since I became an adult. <coughs> faith has no meaning of itself. So the Eastern religions and the health and wealth gospel people, they believe having faith in faith. So that would be like a guy saying, I, my faith will accomplish something. And I'll show you. And he's going to jump over a 2,000 foot cliff and he hands you the end of a kite string. And you're going, this kite string won't support you. No, my faith is going to support me. And I'm going to show you. I need to meditate a minute because I'm going to have faith in the kite string. Mm. Okay, I'm going to jump. Here I go. Wah! It's a kite string. Faith is a nothing. Faith only has a meaning when you say what it's hooked to. So faith, if you would, is a chain. And you're chain, you got the chain around you. But what's the chain hooked to? For us, it's hooked to God. It makes complete sense. We're having faith in his nature, faith in his character, faith in his power. And I could keep going on and on and on. So we are saved by faith in God, specifically in God's grace. So we're putting that faith in his grace. Listen here to a few verses in, in Romans 5. Follow along with me. We're going to read a good portion of this chapter. Therefore, having been justified by the faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand, rejoicing in the hope of God. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, whom we now have access by faith. How, what into? Into this grace. And we stand and rejoice in the certainty of the glory of God. Verse 6 and 8, 6 through 8. And when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet even for a good man, one would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand it? Grace was for you when you were still an enemy of God. Do we get that? God was reaching out to you when you hated his guts. God was reaching out with love and kindness. And, and he has all of this forgiveness of all your sins. He's wanting to bathe you in forgiveness. Get, put write your name in the book of life. When you still were an atheist, when you still were in your sin and you hated everything about Christianity and Jesus, he still was for you. So how much more now after becoming a Christian is he for us? Those are the verses following verse 8, but I'm not going to read those. In verse 15 now, but the free gift of God is not like the offense. For if by one man's sin, offense, that's Adam's sin, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses result in justification. 
For if by one man's sin, again, our offense, referring to Adam's, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And then Romans 6.38, or 6.23, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but what? The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's grace through the cross is more than sufficient. God's grace was reaching out to us. God's grace was pursuing us. God's grace ahead of time, whether you receive it or not, he forgave all of your sins. So when we go to talk to somebody about the Lord, God's for them, God loved them. It says he knitted them in his mother's womb. Have you ever seen a couple who's pregnant and they hate the baby? Right? God loves you. He knitted you in your mother's womb. Before you were born in this world, he knew you. And God now is already paid for everyone's sins. We can go to all the world and say God loves you. God wants to forgive you. God has already paid the price for all of your sins. His grace is pursuing you. The Holy Spirit is already touching their hearts, convicting them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. All they have to do is believe in this giant treasure chest of all the blessings that heavenly places pours upon them instantly and will remain with them because God's grace continues on. We're not just saved by grace. We continue our entire life in his grace. So in Christ, this is a unique faith, a unique trust in God, not like any faith we've experienced on this earth, towards earth or towards man or towards organizations. Faith is not something we acquire or develop or discover by our experiences of living on planet earth. This faith is a gift of God. In Acts 17, 31, because he is Appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has anointed. He has given, it's translated here, assurance, but it's the Greek word pistos. He has given faith or assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus raised from the dead. He conquered all sin from the first sin of Adam to the last sin. And his raising from the dead says to us, the Whatever God says, he can accomplish. And he says he, he, he conquered all our sin, laying it upon him on the cross. And he proved it by conquering it, by raising from the dead. Notice this faith not given to a select group, like the Calvinists claim, but to all men. In Romans 12, 3, as God has given to each one a measure of faith. The word measure in the Greek, um, metron, is the word standardize. It's the same exact amount he gives to everybody on earth. Well, if everybody has a standard amount of faith, why doesn't everybody believe? 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12 tells us this, that the Antichrist with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive what? The love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
John 3 says it even more directly, verse 17 to 20. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, never God's heart to condemn, quite the opposite, but the world through him might be saved. That's the whole thing Jesus came to do was save men. Condemnation is not his desire, but justice is necessary for mercy and love to exist. In verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For this is the condemnation, that the light has come to the world, and that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. You see, if you preach the cross of Christ, it's offensive. If you explain to man that you're, ask, you're telling them to be saved from the wrath to come, they're going to be offended. If you preach the truth and men are unwilling to leave the darkness, then they're going to be mad at you for exposing the fact that they're in darkness. And they're going to be mad at you for talking about something that's not going to happen until they die and they don't want to think about it until they die. And you're bringing it all to the present. Presently, you're a sinner in darkness. Presently, the wrath of God abides on you and it's only a matter of you stepping off the curb and getting hit by a car and you're going to be standing in judgment and eternal damnation. This isn't a game. This is the truth. Faith is how we get the grace. It's the vehicle. It's like water's grace and the hose is the faith that the water comes through. In Hebrews 11:6, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you hear that verse? It's in God. I have faith in God. There has to be a creator. And God created this place wonderfully uniquely amazing i still my mind gets blown when i think about the male and the female of all species coming together in a union and then a baby is created i i I think of god creating that and it just blows my mind And I think of the seed of the man going into the woman and the woman has this factory in her. And once you put the fuel in, (laughs) the factory starts to go to work. And out comes this baby with this personality, with this will. And you you realize this isn't like making a cabinet. (laughs) This isn't like, you know, taking the metal and putting it into a factory and out comes a car. This, this thing that's been made, it's, or to see a puppy being born, or a kitten, or a little monkey. It's, it's just amazing to me how cute those little tiny babies can be. And they have such personality. You got five puppies and they all are so distinctly different. They're unique. It's amazing. And I look at that little puppy and I smell that little puppy breath. And I'm just going, how could anyone think of something so cute, so delightful? I put my face into its fur and it loves it and it's squirming. It just loves the love that I'm giving it. And I love the love it's giving me. 
it licks me and I kiss it. And, and I'm just in that moment going, God, like you said in Genesis 1, everything you did was good, very good. We actually, how do we actually have faith in him? It's so simple. In John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. In Galatians 3, 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Believing, trusting, accepting, receiving, it seems like all of these terms are, are compatible to salvation, to saving faith. In John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 5, 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears these words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Just like John 3, 16, you shall not perish on one side of the coin, you'll have eternal life on the other side of the coin. You will not go into judgment, but you will go to eternal life. In Romans 1, 16, for I am, not, I, am, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for who? Everyone who believes, the Jew first and also for the Greek. So people ask the question, did I, did I have real saving faith? You know, the Bible never answers that. It never says, what's the quality of your faith? It never asks the question, what's the quantity of your faith? Jesus made it clear it's, ins it's insignificant. If you had the, the faith of a little tiny mustard seed, I don't think faith is a thing made of matter, but he's given an analogy. If you had faith of a tiny little mustard seed, you couldn't even see it, probably. It's so small, you could move a mountain and cast it into the ocean. So he's saying that whatever the quality of your faith, whatever the quantity of your faith, it's enough. God's going to grow our faith. God's going to grow us in the knowledge of him. But again, we're going to go into it. It's not of works. It's not of ourself. It's all God. God reaching to us. God pursuing us. God ahead of time before we really understood we even needed it. He sent his son to take your judgment, your punishment, the wrath of God upon himself and rose again. And then after the fact, he says, you're a sinner. Oh, man, I wish you wouldn't say that because I can't do anything about that. I know I wouldn't have talked to you about your sin unless I had a solution. You're going to die. Oh, don't bring that up. I'm so afraid of dying. I wouldn't have brought that up unless I have a solution. We're not going into the world with bad news. You're going to get cancer and die. End of story. That's not what we do. We're going to tell men, you need to put your faith in God, and here's why. You're a sinner. And God, being a God of love and mercy, has to also be a God of judgment and justice. And right now, you, like me, like all men, we cannot attain to our own righteousness. But Christ has already done the work. There is nothing more for you to do, not in the past, not in the present, not in the future. 
You put your faith in him, and he, like a parent having a child, will walk you through your potty training days, <laughs> your junior high years, your high school years. He'll walk you into the day you die. But, 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 but what if I mess it up? Can't. You can't. All who come into Christ are in his hand, and he never lets us go. All who come into Christ, we will never perish. We will never come into judgment. All who come into Christ will have eternal life with Christ. He who began that good work, he will complete it. He's with you always to the ends of the age. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Wow, you told me bad news, which ended up being true news, which I already knew. <laughs> but I had didn't want to think about it because I had no solution for it. But you told me the bad news that I already know, and you told me there's a wonderful solution for it, and it actually is just a gift. It's not something I have to do or earn. And this is where we're going to elaborate next week. Lord, thank you for your word, and bless it into the hearts and the minds of everybody here today that we can all learn and know and grow so clearly in the knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.